Screen Talk is now available on iTunes. You can head there to subscribe to the weekly show, and you can send us feedback on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic uh, for IndieWire, and I'm on the line with Ann Thompson on the other side of the globe in Los Angeles because I'm at the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland. How's everything going over there, Ann? I feel like I've been gone for ages, but I think it's only been like two days. Well, it's your turn to indulge in a European film fest. How's How's the weather? I have to tell you, the one thing that's guaranteed about Locarno is that the weather will always surprise you, even more than the movies sometimes. It's, uh, you know, you're in the mountains, and even though they do these great screenings in the evenings on what they call the Piazza Grande outside with, you know, 8,000 people sometimes, uh, it does rain, and then it will be really hot the next day. And so the amazing thing is you just never know kind of what sort of environment you're going to be watching movies in. Uh, but it keeps you on your toes, and, and the programming does that too, so. So in that sense, I guess they sync up nicely. What have you seen that excited you? Well, I have to tell you, I mean, I I love this festival. This is the fifth year I've been coming. It's the third year that I've been partnering with our old friend Eugene Hernandez, who founded IndieWire and is now at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, running something called the Critics Academy, which is a workshop for aspiring film critics. Uh, But in addition to that, I've started watching movies, and I've been here for, I guess, about 48 hours or so, and I've already seen two really strong ones. Uh, One of them is called The Princess of France. It's uh, the latest quasi-Shakespeare adaptation from an Argentinian director named Matthias Pinheiro. Uh, his last movie was called Viola. Basically what he does is they're, they're kind of like what you might consider a mumblecore movie in the sense that there are these drifting plots about young romantic types uh, and not a whole lot happens. And yet uh, what's fascinating about them is that he uses the text as a sort of foundation for exploring their lives. So in this one, it's it's sort of an adaptation of Love's Labor Lost, the Shakespeare play, and it's sort of about a guy trying to turn Love's Labor Lost into an internet radio play, reappearing in, in Buenos Aires after a long uh, disappearance and rekindling some relationships with various different women, all of whom perform in this play and sometimes become the actual characters in the play. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to explain exactly how the movie works, but if you've seen some of his earlier movies, they take a similar approach. Cinema Guild picked it up for U.S. distribution yesterday, and it will be playing the Fall Festival circuit, the New York Film Festival, the Toronto Film Festival, and uh, it's really for people who, who kind of get excited about these more literary approaches to cinema. So that was an exciting one to see at a place like this before, you know, it kind of gets buried in the Fall Festival circuit. Uh, another one that, that I saw, which really consumed most of my day here, is the latest film from Lav Diaz, a Filipino director who is known, for better or worse, for making very, very long movies. He had a movie <laughs> that opened in the U.S. Uh, I don't know if uh, you had a chance to catch it, and it's called Norte, The End of History. It's a little less than five hours long, which is actually pretty short compared to some of his other movies. I think uh, Century of Birthing is something like eight hours. Uh, This new one, uh, which I think might be his best, uh, I'm still processing it. I just came out of the screening about half an hour ago. Um, it's called From What Is Before, and it's set in, in, 19, in the 1970s, early 1970s, and, and kind of deals with the, um, the tension between 
the military uh, during a communist uprising and the sort of collateral damage it had on rural life at the time. It's shot in black and white. Uh, it's sort of an ensemble drama, uh, but it, it, I would say the first two hours are kind of like almost like a prologue to the real plot of sorts. Uh, it's the sort of thing that you commit to watching, and once you get through sort of the the feet of of the the amount of time you will be investing in this movie, it's it's really tremendously rewarding. And you know, I know we've watched Bellatar films before, and there there's something to be said for the the so-called slow cinema movement, which isn't really a movement per se, but it's a certain approach to telling stories in a very deliberate drawn-out fashion that can be rewarding when, you know, you go through that psychological process of committing to it. And um, in that respect, I think that, you know, this is uh, an ideal movie to be seen in places like Locarno or, let's say, the Wavelength section at Toronto, where an audience will be very receptive to its appeal. Now, that being said, I wouldn't expect it to get released in any kind of significant way in the U.S., so it's really the sort of thing that you hear about it here, You'll hear about it from a couple other critics, but you're really going to have to go out of your way to track it down. And, you know, maybe there's something even more rewarding about that process. But I have to tell you, I mean, I, I came out of this screening to read uh, some news that came out today about another movie that's coming out in the U.S. that's almost as long. And that's uh, The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, which is sort of a movie that was made in two parts, two different perspectives with Jessica Chastain and, and James McAvoy. And, and there's one version of the movie called Him and another version of the movie called Her. Uh, that was the, shown in Toronto a year ago. Right. And then it surfaced at Cannes this year after the Weinstein Company had picked it up and they combined That's a single it. film called Them. Right. And that was what, two hours long, something like that? Mm -hmm. So I didn't get it. So they, to see. It, they edited them together. So we're going to get to see them both. That's exciting. It's very interesting, too, because, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this movie that that I saw here that, you know, is considered some kind of dramatic viewing challenge. And yet here somehow somebody managed to convince Weinstein that this was actually a gamble worth taking. And I, I, that's the only version I've seen. And I thought actually it did work quite well to watch these two movies back to back. Did you have a chance to catch the combined version? I haven't seen any of them bugging the, the Weinstein Co. because they keep having screenings that I can't seem to to go to for whatever reason but i i want to see them all i want to see all three so what is the plan exactly they're gonna they're gonna release both the them and him one there? comes out first so the top the 10 10 date is the combined him and her, her is 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 to release the, the the separate ones side by side and the 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 disappearance of eleanor rigby is earlier them that's at 9 12 and 9 19 so, this so it's going to go limited and then expand. And then after that's been out for like almost a month, they'll put out the, the him, her version. So what I find interesting about this, having seen the, the two-parter, is that seems really redundant to me unless you're an absolute committed kind of, you know, uh, sort of scholarly type who wants to analyze different forms of, you know, narrative. Because, it, it you know, him and her, they overlap in very particular ways, and I think that's what's unique about the work. Them, 
I haven't seen, but my understanding is that it sort of consolidates story aspects from both. So as a, as a commercial proposition, it just sounds very peculiar to me. Perhaps. Well, I would suggest to you that the first version, which is the one that he edited, is the one that they expect to make money on, that, that they hope to, to you know, they're, they're putting it out limited and they're widening it a week later. You know, they're going to try to get money out. They're going to support that with advertising and try to get money. The other one is more, uh, I would suggest to you, cosmetic and, you know, backup kind of thing, you know. It's a sort of bonus of sorts. Right. But I think what's interesting about that is that there might be some tangible audience that will commit to doing those, even if it's not, you know, substantial from a commercial standpoint. It might be more substantial than it was a few years ago. I mean, I've been thinking about how audiences might be more interested in watching long-form content than ever before, mainly because of the rise of binge viewing and the way that TV has sort of impacted our, our sort of receptiveness to, to long-form narrative. I think that's an interesting point that you make because just because you do it at home and, you know, looking on your iPad in bed or sitting in your living room, you, you're not necessarily committing four hours if you go out to the theater. I, I just don't see that being the same thing at all. Right. And maybe there is like one more step that needs to happen before people do, you know, consider that kind of possibility. But it but it seems like TV is definitely having an impact on the way that we relate to movies. The, uh, the one example that we can touch on this week would be Steven Soderbergh turning to TV. Uh, That's a different thing, though. That's a question of uh, the reason that Steven Soderbergh has turned to TV, as I understand it, and you can argue with me about this if you like, is that and it's interesting because I had this. Mark Duplass as well recently, who's, who's also doing a show for HBO called Togetherness, that, that he didn't... Mark Duplass and Steven Soderbergh are both examples of people who thought they were having movie careers. Because the, even the specialty companies, not to mention the studios, have gotten so anxious and worried and, and are second-guessing and softening and trying to reach a wider audience, make sure they're getting their investment. You know, they're so timid. It becomes an advantage to go to HBO. They don't ride you so hard. It's very hard to get a go-ahead from HBO, but, you know, that's the that's the game that these guys are playing. And, and Soderbergh is being more philosophical and dialectical about it. He's saying, these fuckheads should be giving me my freedom and letting me do what I want. They won't give it to me, so I'm not going to work for them anymore. I'm going to do it on, you know, over on the TV side. So now he's exploring the, the alternatives of that kind of narrative. Now he's exploring what he can do with long form. Now he's throwing out the book. But it's not the same thing as, as the experience of watching something on television for a viewer. That may be true. And, and I'm just sort of grasping for, for threads because, you know, look, I would love to see that change actually take place. Not to mention the fact that I am on that high of coming out of a five-and-a-half-hour movie and thinking, hey, more people should watch things like this. This might be just wishful thinking on my part, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to sort of pontificate on it because I think that, you know, just seeing that TV and film are having some kind of a stronger relationship than they used to be suggests some kind of shift in the way that we look at stories. And so, you know, if there is some sort of trickle-down effect where it makes some people have a more kind of adventurous sensibility, and you know, that's a good thing for film culture. But let's talk about... Um, and I, I understand that it's in many ways a good thing, and, and you know, why why couldn't people work in television for... they. Yeah, it's a, it's a question of where the money is and where the status is and where the freedom is and all of that. So if there's more opportunities, go with God. 
I, I get mad because I think that the studios are, are actually killing themselves without realizing it. I think they're shooting themselves in the foot. And, and we're all going to see that going forward. Well, speaking of Soderbergh, we're actually publishing a big Critic Wire poll on, on critics' favorite Soderbergh movies and performances and best shots and all kinds of different things this week. Uh, and that's because The Nick is airing its first episode. You saw that a while back and touched on it. Uh, but it sounds like your your reaction was much more positive than some of the other reviews I've seen so far. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Now, I, I, I've only seen the first two episodes, but I, I loved Clive Owen. I thought he was really back in form. I loved the period. In fact, I happened to look at Penny Dreadful the other day. Uh, I don't know if you watched that series I didn't at all. get around to it. The Josh Harnett show, not right. yet. Right. No. I, and, and, and Ava Green and, and, and John Logan wrote it. And it has all sorts of... It's period, too. You know, old, you know, this similar period. And and I I had liked The Knicks so much, which is basically very naturalistic and, and you know, in, set in a real, uh, you know, real period kind of place in 1900 New York hospital with analog, you know, uh, primitive uh, uh, accoutrements for, for the medical sure. practice. Really bloody and, and gruesome and, and enjoyable. But are you picking up as far as, as the detractors are concerned? Well, I, I read a couple reviews that seemed to think that it was maybe a little too slow going, a little too kind of buried in atmosphere and so forth. And I've, I've watched one episode. I, I saw the pilot uh, and I think that the challenge with this show, first and foremost, in, in a rather superficial sense, is that it's very easy to compare it to the show House, which is also about a doctor who has a drug problem. Um, oh, it's very similar. To, it's a similar character. But it's not It's not going to be, how do I say this? It's This is not a, I, I, I highly doubt that they're going to rely on the same sorts of weekly sitcom formulas. Right. And, and frankly, it's just so much better made. I mean, Clive Owen is fantastic. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's, it's gorgeous. And Soderbergh just rushed through it and, and shot at himself and did all this stuff on a brutal schedule. And, and I just, you know, it, you can feel the, the sort of, uh, on the one hand, the sort of care that has gone into all the, all the work, but also the, the it, it doesn't feel like your normal uh, television at all. And, and by the way, Penny Dreadful, which was a gorgeously made thing, I turned it off. I, I really did not go for it at all. It was it was one of those things that was very arch and very uh, supposedly comedic and and making fun of itself in all sorts of ways, and I just wasn't in the mood. I, I thought that it was incredibly well executed. I wasn't completely won over in the pilot by every sort of small detail of this person's life, and I think that it's a, it's a difficult sell to kind of commit to, to watching that world unfold, but the fact that they're doing it is kind of fascinating, and my feeling is I'd like to wait and see kind of where this goes and then do the binge-watching thing, go back and sort of experience a bunch of episodes at once to see, you know, overall what kind of a world Soderbergh can build because the the first episode alone is just littered with so many details, and, and, you know, it's just interesting to see texture coming ahead of plot to some degree in a project like that. Yeah, um, but there's some shock value, too. I mean, he, that's true. He, there's, a, there's some uh, <laughs> drug-related... Uh, uh, incidents that are pretty insane and some uh, pretty gross uh, operations <laughs> as well. Yes, Does not skip yes. on those details. Yeah. So, and you know, this is another interesting thing. I mean, you got Soderbergh going to TV. You got Clive Owen going to TV. It seems like that's just one indication of different kinds of changes that are going on, sort of within. It's all the becoming home. freeform. It's becoming flexible. It's 
interesting. And, it, and, it, and it's fascinating to watch because it's a market. I mean, the problem with someone like Clive Owen is that if he accepts all the assignments that are available to him, even if he's a well-known and, and gifted actor, um, you, you, if you go with what the studios give you, you're going to be doing a lot of crap. And he realizes that that's true. And, and that's what Soderbergh realizes, too. So in order to reclaim some quality control, that's where television is coming in. It's not the same marketplace as a big, expensive studio movie that has to play to the widest common denominator. So speaking of changes, this has actually been a big week for suggestions of, of changes going on in, in within Hollywood. And since that's your beat, I, I'd like to turn it to you to sort of elaborate on a few of the other things that have been happening in that. Well, one thing that happened when it was announced that Murdoch wanted to buy Time Warner, if you read all the different analysts, the market analysts, and, and we talked about this before. Nikki Fink sort of pointed out a lot of the downside of what this would mean, all the redundancies, all the people who would be thrown out of work, uh, all the ways that it would reduce competition and not be good for Hollywood at all. And I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified by of this huge, huge thing. And uh, to his credit, Jeff Bukes at Warner Brothers really hunkered down, managed to convince his board and, and all these big investors that it was a bad idea, that it, on his own, continuing to increase the value of Time Warner, because they all have to answer to their shareholders, it, he would he would go forward and and it would make more value on its own uh, than, than if they merged with Murdoch. And Murdoch was unable to convince the marketplace that this was good for his company in general. His stock was going down. He was having to answer to his board. And so he ended up having to back off and say, no way, I'm not doing this. I'm withdrawing my offer. If it's not friendly, I don't want to do it. And and put some more money, you know, invest some more billions into his own company, buying back shares and stuff. So it was interesting to see that. It was interesting to watch that play play out. Which is maybe for the best. Glad that that's how it worked out. Yeah. yeah. No, they aren't. They aren't right <laughs> all the time. <laughs> It's interesting how they accept these truisms, these sort of mythologies. You know, Rupert always gets what he wants. Maybe not. Maybe not this time. So on that inspiring note, why don't we talk about our picks for the week? I am going to let you go first. All right, so my pick for the week is uh, actually a movie that premiered at the festival I'm at right now, the Locarno Film Festival last year. It's a uh, documentary of sorts, sort of a, a, a narrative essay film called What Now Remind Me. It's a Portuguese film from a filmmaker named Joaquin Pinto, who's been a fixture of Portuguese cinema. He's worked as an editor and done various other jobs for luminaries such as Manuel Oliveira, who's the oldest filmmaker in the world right now, and Raul Ruiz, who died a few years ago. And um, he has HIV. He's lived with HIV for over a decade. And the film is, follows him over the course of one year, uh, in which he tries various experimental medications. Now, if you were to look up the trailer for this movie, I'm not sure if it gives you a full sense for kind of how beautifully poetic the film is. It really kind of, it's not so much about the disease as it is a man kind of lost in his thoughts and confronted with his own mortality. Now, I, some people might say that, oh, that sounds pretentious or whatever, but I, I think the, the way into this movie is to see it as a succession of images that show you how how we really connect with life in, in ways that go beyond words. So you have this foundation, which is this guy struggling to survive however he can, and 
through that prism, you also see him at home with his dogs, who are kind of the Greek chorus of the film, on the road with his lover, considering his career path, uh, just sort of reciting poetry in some cases. It's, it's really just a remarkable visual experiment, but it's also funny and sad and moving in all these different kinds of ways. So, so I don't see it as just a, a pure kind of experiment with film form. It's something much more satisfying on an emotional level. And uh, in New York, when, where the film is being released, they're also going to do a retrospective of other things that Joaquin Pinto has done. So it's, it's a real nice discovery uh, moment for this, this guy in, in North America. And uh, if the film isn't opening at a theater near you, because uh, Cinema Guild, which is also releasing that movie, uh, The Princess of France, I mentioned earlier, is putting it out, I would assume there will be some kind of digital release for this movie further down the line. And my hope is that that will be an opportunity for a filmmaker who deserves to get more attention in, in the North American uh, part, uh, hemisphere uh, really does finally get to that point. So, so that's my pick for the week is what now remind me what's yours. Mine is the, the, the one I love. And um, the reason I'm saying that now is because it's available on VOD two and a half weeks ahead of its uh, theatrical uh, release. It's a radius film, so they're going to be favoring the uh, the VOD uh, primo release, which will be you know available um, at a cable company near you for like you know ten dollars. Which, by the way, is an actually very reasonable price. Incredibly, if if VOD. you think about the fact that you know multiple people can watch this movie together, you're saving a lot. You know, which uh, maybe yeah. is part of the point. And it's also part of this, you know, sort of, you know, new indie paradigm, you know, where you where you make a small, you know, really micro budget movie. Uh, everybody works for a very low fee. Uh, if, if it gets sold and it gets picked up, then everybody shares the whatever the the, the, the profits are on that. And it's it's actually, um, you know, shot in one location, uh, two hander, you know, with with uh, Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss. And uh, it's a nice twisty uh, twisty little uh, romantic mystery uh, movie. I would not call it a thriller. It's psychological. Um, it's a little sexy. It's a little kinky. And the two actors are just superb. So I highly recommend it. And you're being very generous not spoiling the twist, which actually comes fairly early in the movie. You know, that just shows that you actually like it. So I do. And then I will warn you against any number of movies that are opening, including The Hundred Foot Journey, which is very Lassie Hallstrom, very, very fake and doctored and not quite real. And yet it has its charms. The, the food, the young leads, uh, the, the, the French setting with the strange combination of people speaking English and French and English with French accents, which is absurd. It's just one of those movies where I go, yeah. But on the other hand, A.R. Rahman, you know, a lot of fun can be had. Um, and then uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles made me want to run for the hills. And uh, about Alex is this young, it's another kind of uh, typical uh, put the group together ensemble, you know, everybody for the weekend, somebody almost committed suicide, hang together. And again, I confess I didn't make it through to the end of the movie. See, if you rolled together the running time for all three of those, you'd still have something not as long as the brilliant Filipino film I saw today. So, you know... (laughs) There, there, there's all the little stuff that happens to break through the marketplace, and then there are these big things that can't. So just 
that point of contrast, I think, is, is something people should keep in mind, maybe. Uh, better options out there. So on that note, I will still be here next week, and I'll have a lot more movies to talk about, and we'll have tons of other things to discuss as well. Hopefully the rest of the world will still be doing movie stuff uh, in the next seven days. Otherwise, I'll just keep talking about Lucarno because I love it here. Have fun. I'm Thanks. jealous. Thanks.